That has got to be the coolest music on radio. That is, in fact, the theme for the film. Do you remember the film uh, Kick-Ass? Well, we chose it because it's the Fuzzy Logic Science Program and Kick-Ass Science. And I've got a couple of friends in the studio with me today. Sian, good morning, Sian. Good morning, Rod. And Hannah. Morning. <laughs> and we've got a theme today. Our theme is complexity machinery robotics and what we do with technology how do we manage our world with complexity and how technology helps or maybe it doesn't always do that because here i am sitting in front of this console it has enough buttons dials knobs and gadgets to drive a nuclear power reactor and at the same time we're bringing you our kick our science program now i wanted to kick off with a little anecdote because this morning I have one of those little everyday mundane problems shoelaces <laughs> right shoelaces I've got a brand new pair of shoes in fact I'm going to put them up on the table here there they are I bought them last week and I hate buying shoes but I had to relace them and how am I going to do that one of the uh, ends of the uh, the shoelace uh, is missing its little cap and I can't get it through the hole, right? So then I had to thread it through in the reverse direction. And I'm just thinking, how difficult is that? So normally, you know, you start at the bottom of the shoe and you work your way out, right? So this time I'm starting at the opposite direction. And I'm thinking, life is complicated. The world is a complicated place. And what really strikes me is how you don't have to go out into space so uh, hannah you've got uh, a background in astrophysics one of the most complicated things i could possibly imagine but i'm i'm going to be giving a talk i've been invited to give a talk uh, probably in september and the theme or the title i'm going to give it is hearing infinity Ooh. partly because i can't resist a grandiose title for a, for a conversation for a talk but also because infinity is right here around us. It was in my shoes, it's in this room, and you see it in the things you do. And I mean, out there in space, it's, well, infinitely complicated, is it not? Oh, the scale of it is just absolutely mind-blowing, and it's um, particularly one of, the, one of the more exciting things is to try and get your head around that, that concept of infinity for sure and space definitely explores that quite a lot yeah how do you how do you cope with it so what are some of the strategies that you would use to say I can't possibly fit the universe the cosmos into my head how do I how do I manage it I try not to think about it too much if I'm honest <laughs> it's it's just too mind-blowing it's the kind of thing that does keep me from going to sleep in the evenings but um at the same time it's it's one of the more exciting parts of studying astronomy and being able to share that that complete mind-blowing factor with with colleagues is one of the one of the better parts of the job so when you when you say uh, you try not to think about it I think what possibly what you're hinting at is you don't try and think about infinity all in one go yeah I think that's a pretty good way of putting it definitely so you, you you break the problem down into something that is more manageable absolutely that's how we call, uh, deal with complexity in everyday life as well i think you know you're talking about complexity today that's that's certainly one way to approach astronomy definitely so you you you, you chunk it 
And uh, Sian, you you had a, a, a story too. You were describing before the show about how you were doing some reaction and you got to let some air in. What what was that? Oh yeah. So my background is in organometallic chemistry, and I was mentioning how the reactions I would do were incredibly air and water sensitive so we do them all under nitrogen or argon or an an inert gas a gas that wasn't going to react with the with what we were making um but because air it's it's tiny you can't see it so (laughs) you're trying to do this reaction you're trying to make sure there's no air in there but how do you know if you know just a couple of little molecules get in there they can affect the outcome of that reaction so so much and i think that really that really speaks to the idea of complexity and how all these tiny little things we can't see have such a great effect on everything else but yet in the face of all of that you manage to do your chemistry. Yeah, well, you have to. And, and I've got to say, listener, you, it's a shame that the microphone doesn't transmit image because Sian is waving her hands expansively across the studio there, uh, indicating the air and what... I, I remember this moment when I was maybe six or seven years old, and I wonder if you had this, and I actually it dawned on me that there is actually stuff in between us, like there is this thing called air. I just always thought of, thought of it as being space, did you, did you have that moment like, oh, there's air. <laughs> it actually has substance. <laughs> and I think that's something Hannah and I have both tried to get across in our work since doing our science degrees, trying to show kids that air is a thing. And if you have a cup, it's not actually empty. There's air inside of that. And that has so many effects on everything else, whether it's the air pressure and what that is. Um, and I think that's really interesting. It's a really important thing to be able to get across to people. Uh, do, do you see the little eyes go, oh, well, I hadn't thought of that. Do they, do they little light up? Do you totally do. You see that moment of like that aha moment where it clicks and it suddenly makes sense. Now, uh, back back to the how you deal with complexity. So a while ago, we interviewed a chemist and we should if I get him back because he was fantastic uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head but there, I'm, tr- I'm struggling with complexity but I asked him what he, he does at the ANU is uh, he runs the, the lab and they synthesise chemicals so particularly uh, biologically or medicinally pharmaceutical chemicals right so uh, someone, a drug manufacturer comes to them and they say we know this has the the effects that we want in the human body or whatever. We'd like you to make it, synthesise it in a lab. And so I, how do you do that? And one of the key strategies he described is they chunk things. So you, you just take a known thing and you say, well, I know this little something A's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what's what's the right term? <laughs> like a, it's a it's a unit, a comp, it's it's composite of something, and you and you assemble chunks. And so yeah, and, and in fact, it happens right now. We're doing it in the studio. Uh, our eyes are flicking around the studio, and there's a, only a very small part of our eye that shows any vision in detail, and that's the bit that falls on the fovea or fovea, have you pronounce it right? And the rest of our visual scene is all constructed for us inside our brain. And so what what our, what our visual system is doing is it's chunking, 
and it's just picking up the details and our brain fills in the rest because our brain just cannot cope with how many megapixels gigapixels terapixels worth of information so now the role of technology let's talk about technology in your experiences like we've got our mobile phones in here do you do you find or do you think that the technology helps or it, it is does it hinder what does it, what does it do for you in this does it make it does it make your life simpler or does it make it more complicated oh it's definitely a double-edged sword in terms of whether it makes my life more complicated i think from a from a scientific point of view particularly in our experiences technology um alludes to much more of the universe um, than we could have possibly imagined before. It gives you a bit more of a glimpse of what it is that you don't know and that's something that I, I particularly like about astronomy is that the more we actually discover through technology, the more we kind of scratch our heads and go, well, hang on a second, we actually don't know anything about that. Um, <laughs> let's, let's delve a little bit deeper and develop a bit more technology so we can get a bit of a better picture of what it is that we're actually looking at. Do you, do you think that um, this is one thing that differentiates science from a, uh, what's the term, uh, a dogma? So what, what, you're, what you've described there, Hannah, is uh, you, you're saying, I don't know. But with, with a dogma, you say, I don't need to know or I do know because I just go with some fixed tenant that someone has supplied me. And there's, there's no uncertainty in a dogma, is there? Well, I'm not sure. I think the, the term uncertainty might mean something a bit different when you're talking about science versus uh, issues that are outside of scientific mm. research. Um, and the uncertainties is what uh, helps drive scientific research in a way that knowing something, and, and I use that term knowing reasonably loosely, uh, might not have done without, without that sort of probing question, the drive to actually look a bit deeper and find out something that you didn't know before. So I'm not sure that they're mutually exclusive concepts. I think um, they just might mean something a bit different when you're talking about science and non-science. Well, uh, what, what I'm getting to is, though, it's, the, it's unsettling in science. You, you're kind of saying that everything you know is subject to possibly to be changed and you have to be able to let go of it any time whereas if you're attached to a dogma you don't have that uncertainty yeah i guess you could say that um i know a lot of scientists who are definitely attached to their research in that particular <laughs> way as well um yeah I'm, I'm not too sure what what more i can sort of shed on that one uh, unfortunately can just um um uh, tell me a bit about your, your uh, astrophysics background, by the way, because I'm curious. I don't know much about what what did you do in that? Uh, so my, my astrophysics, I did a bit of research in a lab actually helping to bring uh, real life astronomy projects into a high school classroom. Uh, so I worked on a, on a very interesting telescope called the Murchison Widefield Array. Ah. This is out in the desert in the middle of Western Australia. It's a very important instrument for the upcoming Square Kilometre Array project. Uh, it's the Square Kilometre Array project is essentially the biggest scientific undertaking that the world has ever seen, and it's going to help us look um, across nations, use technology across nations to look at space in a, in a whole new way. And I was trying to get that telescope, that uh, the one in the desert in WA, I was trying to take pieces of that and bring it into high school classrooms and make the whole concept of radio astronomy and looking at space slightly more accessible to, to high school students by allowing them to, to pick up the instrument and do some science with it themselves. That's where my background lies. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I, I'd love to do some more on the uh, square kilometre array. What kind of reaction did you get from the kids there? 
Um, absolutely fantastic reaction. It's a, it makes a huge difference for, for kids to be able to hold on to something in their hands rather than read about it in a textbook. And to be able to bring that, that telescope into a classroom was something that they hadn't experienced before and something that the teachers hadn't experienced before as well. Um, and it's this kind of thing that, that Sian and I both do quite a lot of now in that we, we try and bring these sorts of experiences to high school students around the country and maybe talk about our science a little more than actually doing some more science, just like we're doing with you on radio now. <laughs> well, that, that really uh, came home to me last week because on Fuzzy Logic we interviewed the United States President of the Mars Society, <laughs> uh, Dr Robert Zubrin, and uh, he was a really interesting character, but we talked about the project to send humans to Mars, oh. and that is a really big deal. And but we, we kicked off the program talking about why we should do it and so on, and a lot of the theme was... Not the technology, not the bits, the bobs, the hows and the whys and all the technical stuff, but it was about this human side. And what you're talking about with the kids is, well, it's that sense of just, wow, isn't that amazing? And, 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 and you get the, the lies light up and a moment ago, Sian, you were waving your hands. And, and, do you find that um, when, when you talk to the kids that you, like you, you said you talked about air and uh, is there kind of a real thirst for those kids, like a real sense of curiosity amongst them, do you think? Yeah, you totally see that. Um, and we've been into schools across the country um, and everywhere, no matter what scientific topic you're talking about, no matter what demonstration you're doing, you see the kids just really drinking in that information and you you see that moment in their eyes when they get it and it's it's really lovely to see that and be able to go yeah I think I think I've really shown them something here and hopefully what we were looking for is not so much to teach them science but to get them interested in science the scientific process and finding out more about how the world works and seeing its relevance to them and, and that's what's really, really great. Is it the sense of curiosity? Is that, do you think, where it starts? Oh, yeah, exactly. And so many kids have this ingrained sense of curiosity. And it's so important that that's fostered because it just does so much in later life and you don't want to get rid of that. You want to really... Do you, do, you, do you think that it goes away, that at some age kids sort of lose it and, and we just become adults and we're kind of caught up in our management of day-to-day stuff, you know, and, and are, are kids punished almost sometimes for asking questions, do you think? I don't think it, it, that kids are punished, but I think that uh, the more structured way that we talk about science in upper high school and particularly university and that kind of thing, the, the sense of curiosity and creativity tends to just fall away in favour of, of passing tests and um, showing that you know facts rather than your enthusiasm for seeking them out. And that's something that, that we try and sort of reintroduce into the classroom is that creativity and the, the sense of curiosity and that it's okay to, to ask those questions and it's okay not to know things and that that drive to discover something is, is what scientists do every single day. Well, the, f- the first step to winning the Nobel Prize is the good question. And, <laughs> and one of the things I like about doing fuzzy logic is I generally don't have the answer. I almost always am interviewing somebody who knows buckets, universe loads more than I know about any given topic. 
but I ask the question and I see how they respond and their eyes light up and Sian, you're waving your arms around enthusiastically and that, that's what it's all about. And that's probably a good segue, in fact, to uh, a interview that I recorded recently at the NICTA Labs. I just want to say a little bit about NICTA because uh, NICTA is a really interesting organisation. You know, in Australia, we say how bad we are at converting our smarts. We're like, we're really clever, innovative people, and we really struggle to turn it into commercial, money-earning, usable products, okay? Do Do we hear that a lot? Yes. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, Not personally, but sure, yeah. I can see where that would be a problem. Yeah, there there are many stories, you know, why why do we come up with the good ideas and somebody overseas earns all the money from it? Well, the NICTA labs uh, are are IT-oriented labs. They take research ideas and turn them into commercial, realisable products. So they had a tech fest over in Sydney uh, a couple of weeks ago, which I went to, and they have all sorts of demonstration things. And one interview we won't play today was uh, for just an example of one where they put monitors on a bridge. And it costs a lot of money to maintain all this infrastructure, right? And these monitors uh, sense how much the bridge is moving and therefore which ones need maintenance and therefore where to spend your scarce infrastructure dollar. But uh, back to the kids, and here is the one I recorded on the theme of Lego robots. So, Karen Young, I'm standing in front of this, well, it looks like an obstacle course on the floor, uh, white panels, there's bits of wood, there are little bumps and so on, and little trolley cart type things. Now, I'm going to get you, Karen, to explain a bit more clearly (laughs) what it is that we're seeing in front of us here. Okay, so... uh I'm a high school teacher and some of my students have made uh, robots using um, special Lego technology that is, it's normal Lego bricks but with extra motors and actuators to make them robotic. Uh, So my students have programmed these robots to follow a a black line through an obstacle course and the obstacle course is on tiles so there's uh, a speed bump and uh, there's a little ramp that has to go over. Uh, We also have uh, big tunnels and um, a big big uh, seesaw that we couldn't bring today unfortunately but it does a lot of different things uh, different obstacles it has to go through and then at the end of the course it has to detect that it's entered a um, an oil spill so there's a big green uh, tile there's a tile with a big green blob on it and that is the uh, oil spill so the robot has to go into the oil spill and find a can so sense where the can is and then uh, pick the can up and take it to safety. This is way, way cool. The, the start of the obstacle course is a little archway like the, well, like the Arch de Triomphe, of course. Mm-hmm. And I'll get you to describe the little Lego robot devices a bit more for, before we go on. Okay, so, um, yeah, there's a, there's a brick which has all the uh, software on it. So it's a big, uh, it's, a, well, it's a smallish rectangular um, brick that is in charge, that, you know, it... You add, you can create programs using uh, Lego software that you put onto the brick, and then that um, it's got lots of different Lego connections to. You can build robots. We've got robots in many different formats and sizes and designs because uh, no two robots are made differently, uh, made the same. And um, we've got 
lots of sensors on them as well, so they can read the environment. So there's light sensors on some. Some of them have ultrasonic sensors, which send out waves. Oh, so this is Lego style too, so you can plug and play? Or... Plug and play, that's exactly right. So, the, yeah, the ultrasonic one sends out waves and it, and it can detect where things are. So it's like eyes. And there's also sound sensors and touch sensors to uh, help you determine if you've made contact with um, any different of the any of the obstacles. Wow! And on the floor, surrounding the whole thing is well about fifteen thousand school kids, and they are in rapt attention. This is really engaging the kids. Is that what you find? Yeah, it's really great. We find we have a robotics club at our school that t- starts in year five, and um, so students can from year five get involved in making these robots. And it's it's simple enough that anyone can get started, but it's complicated enough that once you've mastered the basics, you can get. Uh, there's all sorts of different changes you can make and different things you can do. So you can uh, there's more difficult programming languages that allow you a lot more control over the robots, and uh, so there's lots to build up on. It's yeah, really great. I, I I just see myself actually playing with these things for hours on end. Mm-hmm. It's such potential. And you, can you interface them with something else? Like could you get them through like? a Wi-Fi link to record to a base computer or something like that? Uh, you can. Well, they are. They have the option of being remote controlled at the moment, so you can download an app on your phone and remote control the robots, uh, which is kind of fun. It's been a big hit today. Uh, but there's uh, other than that, there's not really... Um, they're mostly just programmed through the Lego software. Uh, I mean, after you've... Uh, people often very quickly outgrow the Lego software and they start to build their own robots using Arduinos or uh, other software like that and they build them and they can, um, you know, uh, yeah, build them from the ground up almost. Well, sparking young minds with science, technology, engineering, mathematics and all those things that we need to make. It's not well known, but uh, deep in the bowels of Castle Fuzzy Logic, we have our secret laboratory. And tapping away for the last few weeks... We've been using our 3D printer and I can now reveal to you that two of our guests this morning were in fact constructions from that 3D printer and (laughs) they are doing a remarkable job of resembling Sian and Hannah. (laughs) And uh, and their first mission, apart from uh, having what they've already done this morning, is to tell us about 3D printing. Now, the word printing is a fairly obvious one 3d three-dimensional this is a really hot topic Hannah what 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 is a three I know it's a dumb basic question give us some of the basics oh, I don't think it's a dumb question at all the concept of 3d printing is such a new one to people that um when you say the word 3d printer it's often hard for people to visualize what what something like that actually is Now, there's a few parallels that you can make when you're describing a 3D printer. Um, If anyone's familiar with using a hot glue gun, for example, you'll know that something solid goes through the back, it melts, and then you use the hot glue gun to deposit that melted material down on a surface. Uh, A 3D printer uses much the same technology in that it essentially takes what looks like whippersnipper cord and it runs it through uh, something that's a heated element and it deposits sections of that whippersnipper core, that melted material down on a platform. And what we do is we build up 3D images, 3D structures, by depositing 2D 
cross-sections of that, that structure. In the same way that you see a CAT scan uh, gives you lots and lots and lots and lots of cross-sections of a 3D object, 3D printing does the same thing but builds it up using a, a plastic material. Okay, so to start with, you need a model that you're going. You need a, a, a plan, right? That you're going to you're going to print from. So you have to tell the 3D printer, please print this. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing with 3D printing is to be able to have something to print, you need to come up with a design. And there are three main ways that you can do this designing. There's coding, drawing, and scanning. So coding is putting like mathematical instructions into um, a program and telling it through these words and numbers what you want it, want it to put out. Um, this can be really difficult because you need to know a lot of language to be able to put in there, the mathematical language, although there are often shortcuts. You can say draw a sphere um, with these specific dimensions and it will draw a sphere. Do I say chunking? Yes, essentially chunking. You're breaking it down into pieces. That's pretty much exactly how design for 3D printing works. So coding's one of them. Um, another way is drawing. So you have a program that has what we call a graphical interface. So that's essentially kind of like you do on a program like Paint or something, but a little bit more complex. You can grab and click shapes and the problem with, I guess, a computer screen is that it's 2D and you're trying to make something that's 3D. So you draw a 2D shape and then you do what we call extruding, which is you pull it out into a 3D shape. So like you can pull out a circle into a cylinder. And so that's the next type. And then the final type of design is scanning. You can do that in a couple of different ways. There's um, with a camera, either stills or video, or with x-rays. The thing with scanning is that you need a real-world model to be able to use. You can't scan something that isn't there. Um, and also it can be kind of time-consuming. And depending on the quality of the x-rays or the cameras, it can lack in quality in the output as well. But there's pros and cons for each of these different methods. It really depends on what you want to design and how you want to design it. Yeah, absolutely, and each of those has its own uh, its own place in terms of 3D design and 3D printing. But the output is is often the same. We we use a sort of a bridging program that takes your design from your photos or your drawing or your coding. It interprets it into something that the printer can then uh, divide up into its individual 2D layers, and then the printer interprets all of those layers and puts them together for you. Now, uh, not at Castle Fuzzy, uh, because that's the really secret one. But uh, and I've got to say, it's done a fine job with you this morning. Uh, but the one you've got, <laughs> the one that you've got to uh, to play with, because you, you actually have access to one, and but it's only using a single type of material. What if you've got a composite material? How are there? I gather there are some that do that kind of thing. Well, the technology is is very very new uh, in terms of the accessibility for people to use these kinds of. Uh, pieces of technology in their workshops or in offices like we get the, the pleasure of doing. Um, most of them, most of them do use a single material, but that material isn't always limited to plastic. Uh, there is uh, a particular kind of 3D printer that uses metals uh, that starts with a powdered form of many alloy metals, that kind of thing. You can do similar similar work in terms of 3D printing. There is, I know, a lot of research going in uh, at the moment, particularly places like NASA, to bring it back to the space theme. Um, NASA are trying to put together a printer that prints food 
essentially, for their astronauts out in space. And when I say print food, I don't mean it's got chocolate sauce in one and pancake batter in the other <laughs> nozzle. It's more a, a form of getting basic proteins, getting basic carbohydrates, and how can we use a 3D printer to put those together in a particular way that might one day print an astronaut a pizza or something on the uh, International Space Station. Oh, that is really cool. That is really cool. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, we had uh, Dr. Robert Zubrin from the program last week on Fuzzy Logic and he gave a terrific lecture too at a packed audience at the ANU. Oh, by the way, you can buy his book, The Case for Mars. But one of the questions that came up during that interview or during uh, that conversation was, what do you do for spare parts? So now imagine the, his plan involves uh, ferrying astronauts up to the surface of Mars, right, and then depositing a habitat on the surface. And uh, what do you do when you run out of parts? Because these are complicated bits of equipment, these habitats, and you can't bring the entire spare bits with you because it's very expensive to get this stuff into space. You're exactly right. And NASA actually does something really similar to this at the moment. So up on the International Space Station, they have a 3D printer there. And if the astronauts up on the space station need something... Uh, NASA down in Texas will send them the file. They'll email them the file. It'll go up to the space station and they can actually print it out up there. So NASA on their website has this file for a spanner that you can download that they sent up to the International Space Station. The astronauts printed it out so they could use in their day-to-day -day work. And it's actually accessible by anyone who has the internet. You can download this file and if you have access to a 3D printer, you can print it out, which is so cool because that, that is how they do things now up on the International Space Station. If they're missing a part, they get NASA to find the design, make the design, email it up to them and they can print it out. And that's so much easier than sending things up via shuttle or whatever. That is way cool. Now, I missed the, the, the plan, that you, the particular design that you said. was. It was a spanner. A spanner? Yeah. A spanner. <laughs> cool. Uh, now, do you remember that movie um, about Apollo 13? And they're up there in space and they had the, an accident and, and the, the, uh, the, their shuttle was damaged and they've got three astronauts have to get them back to Earth. Yes, Hannah's nodding. Yeah, but just think of, of of the problem that they had there. There was this terrific scene in there, right? So they've got uh, uh, the people on Earth, and they say, and they dump all this stuff on the table. They say the guys in the spaceship have got these things available to help them out. Here's a bit of a uh, plastic tubing. Here's a bit of sticky tape. Go make an oxygen scrubber out of that lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and now if they had a three D printer. All of their problems would have been solved. <laughs> well, uh, the movie would have been so much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was right on to that because the real sound and Hannah couldn't make it this morning, so I'm so glad that I printed some backup parts this morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, is it expensive? Uh, it's not a consumer article yet, or except the really low end, I gather. Well, this kind of technology is coming ahead in absolute leaps, leaps and bounds. Uh, the printer that we have access to 10 years ago would have been upwards of $20,000 worth of equipment. Mm. Today you can pick one up that's exactly the same for about two to $4,000. 
So if if there are um, enthusiasts who are keen on getting this kind of thing, I mean, for the same price as a high-end guitar, you can buy yourself a 3D printer to have in your house. And there's a fantastic online community of people who share their designs for free so that if you have something in mind that you want to be printing, it's definitely within the consumer reach, I think, to, to be able to get themselves a 3D printer and to print these things. I have a really another really naive question. That is, if you've got an undercut shape... How do you do that? So, because uh, this thing is depositing layer after layer on top, right? So, what if there's a bridge or an internal cavity, and yeah, <laughs> and, and and how do you how does it manage to do that? Because it's got to like build, like yeah, this messy structure. Yeah. So this really takes us to the idea of captured parts, I suppose. So yeah, three D printers print in two D layers from the bottom up. And often you will have a part that's inside that you can't mm. get out. So, for example, the workings of the spanner. And the way this is printed is the layers in each of these things are considered in the printing and they're printed at the same time. So if you consider um, a cube with um, holes in the sides of it but a ball in it that won't fit out of the holes, yep. you can print that in one go. You print it up with the 2D layers stacking up, 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 all the way to the top. And it often uses what we call scaffolding, which is really loose material, which is lightly printed that you can just rip off afterwards. And it comes out and looks like your final finished product. And you just have those little bits of plastic holding it in place while you're building up. Yeah, so like when you're talking about the, the bridge, for example, it might seem that you're building onto thin air, essentially, but in the same way that scaffolding is used in the construction of a house or to build overhangs in construction, you use scaffolding in 3D printing as well. And like Sian said, it's a material that you can easily remove, like a draft copy of what the printer is putting out. And you can tear that away so that you build up, have something nice and solid to, to build your bridge on top of, and then remove it afterwards so your bridge can, uh, can span the distance. Uh, th this is a fantastic stuff. Is it really a game changer, do you think? Is, is it really what they call a disruptive technology that just fundamentally changes things so much that one day we'll just go, well, like a whole industry has disappeared or or you, how would we ever cope before we had a 3D printer? Well, I think um, at this point in time, it's, it's definitely not going to replace manufacture. Uh, it's quite a slow process. Something about the size of a mobile phone can take you a couple of hours to print out. Where it is a game changer is in design thinking and prototyping. So if somebody has something that they just want to be able to hold in their hands, I know a lot of people... Um, enjoy playing video games, well, they would design a first draft of that video game controller, the console controller, print it out, test the ergonomics of that kind of thing, and then go back to the digital design. So in terms of prototyping, in terms of design, absolutely, it's complementary. It's, uh, it's not replacing anything. It's, it's definitely adding. Um, and in terms of manufacture, we're not quite there yet. It's, uh, isn't it amazing the way I, I just love the inventiveness of humans that you know, somebody came up with this idea. Maybe they were trying to thread their shoelace in the morning on their <laughs> brand new sand shoes, and they're going, oh, "I really wish I could uh, construct a new set of laces." I don't know. Maybe you <laughs> wouldn't make laces out of it. But it's interesting also how we uh, there are unanticipated consequences. So, did you hear the story about somebody putting up the design for a gun on the web, and you could add down it? I don't know. <laughs> I'd be game to shoot a gun made out of plastic. But you could actually construct a, uh, a gun. 
Yeah, and that's definitely a concern uh, with any kind of new technology that comes out, I think, in, in terms of what people are going to use it for. But you're right, why would you, why would you use a plastic gun? I think it's, a, it's something that where there's a means, there, there will be an end, and I'm not sure that 3D printing is going to provide that for a, a lot of sinister applications like the one you're talking of. Yeah, but mind you, you know, the first person who invented a knife so they could scrape the meat off their buffalo or their bison or whatever, uh, you know, turned around the next day and stabbed his mate. So I guess that's just the way technology goes <laughs> absolutely and here on fuzzy logic we've been talking 3d printers plenty more coming up i think we might cut to a music break you'll recognize what this track is i'm sure That is such a cool song here on Fuzzy Logic, and we have been talking 3D printers with myself, Rod, Sian, and Hannah. And let's go now from 3D objects to 3D vision and another interview that I recorded out at the Nicta Labs recently. Okay, oh, I'm hovering over the ground. This is really weird. The image is flickering a little bit. <laughs> I look down, there are mountains, there are valleys. I'm looking down at a town where... Oh, there's a spiral path. I can see the track. I'm actually hanging hanging off a hang glider. I'm in a 3D image simulator, and I'm wearing this binocular head kit, and I'm following the track of an actual hang glider path. And as I swivel my head around, the, the headset senses my movements, and it's changing my view as I do that in these 3D goggles. The image is a bit flickery, uh, but wow, what a, I'm almost getting a sense of vertigo as I look down. Oh, you, oh, you wouldn't want to be um, thinking about heights because now I've got my head swiveled right down. I'm looking at the ground, <laughs> and uh, I can't see my feet. All I can see is what's coming through the headset. And I can also see three other tracks. There's an orange line, a green line, and a blue line. And attached to the end of each of those are the tracks of other hang gliders. Wow. This is really, this is really amazing. All right, so we're talking to Chris Cooper here at NICTA. And Chris, what's your role at NICTA? So I'm a senior software engineer working in the ETD group, which is the engineering group within NICTA. And in front of us, you've got this kit set up called, well, tell me, what do you, what do you call it? So we've developed a website called Doorama, which is providing visualizations of activities that you've done outside um, directly within a web browser. So they're 3D visualizations based on the GPS track that you've recorded when you've done the outdoor activity. And it enables you to also synchronize other media with the GPS track, like video or photos or text annotations, so that they play back in sync with your video, with your GPS track. So it allows you to explore, explore everything around you as you follow the, this 3D track through space. Yeah, well, in particular, it allows you to share experiences that you've had outdoors with other people. So your friends on social media, for example, um, if you've done a big bike ride or a um, big walk somewhere or been for a hang glide, then you can record your GPS track and um, share it with friends and they can see um, and inspect what, what you've done. 
what's happening um, while someone is out doing some. Oh, so you could link this up with a sporting event, so the mountain bike downhill races, and they could have it on their helmet, and you at home could have your viewer on, and you could track them as they go down the mountain. Is something like that? Yeah, totally. And I guess it makes most sense for things where the vertical aspect is important. So um, things like mountain biking, where you're riding up and down hills, the hills make a lot of difference to what's going on. So it's great to be able to see that on a 3D view. And also um, the flying activities like hang gliding and paragliding, that's already proving popular um, in those areas where, um, you know, it's really important um, how the landscape affects the way air moves and um, how it affects their their flights. Now, we are, I've just been uh, trying on the Oculus 3D goggles, and so you've wired up to that. So what, what's the experience that you would share with that one? Right, so it's using the same 3D interactive map that you see in the normal desktop version of the app, um, and it's still running through a web browser as well. So you basically hit, hit a button in the interface if you have an Oculus handy. <laughs> if you happen to have that hardware, you can just hit a button and um, see... In a way, it's like you're getting inside the 3D map and having being able to look around. If there's a flying activity, the feeling is a little similar to you're flying alongside um, the person who has recorded the GPS track. I can imagine a vast range of uses for something like this. So it could be military uses, it could be scientific research. I was up at the Snowy Scheme the other day and they were talking about how they inspect the tunnels. So you could possibly have a 3D tracking camera going down a tunnel and you can follow what's going on down in there, something like that. Are those other sorts of uses you've thought about? Um, there's definitely people using the service in ways we never intended. So um, there's some researchers in Holland who are researching bird flight and um, we found out by accident that they're using the website to visualise the flight of seagulls. They've developed their own GPS tracking device that has solar panels and automatically up loads over the GSM network when a, when a bird gets back into a populated area and yeah they've been finding the tool useful for visualising the flights of birds and because it's all web based it's very easy to send a link to a visualisation to another researcher or um, or someone you know other interested party. Yeah you, you've tapped into existing standards so it's an easily reusable technology I think that's been a, a driver from what you described. Yeah yeah we using the same mapping framework that's being used on other projects within Nikta that allows um, 3D map visualisation directly within a web browser without any plugins. And that, that platform's called Cesium, so we're building on top of that mapping framework. Wow, and how long do you think before the, the average person can go onto a website and share one of these experiences? Well, they can go and do that right now if they just go to doorama.com. Um, they can upload their own GPS track. You can record a GPS track either off a dedicated device or it can just be off a smartphone. Um, so um, you'll see examples of things as simple as bike rides that I've done up on the website. Um, and you can, if you have an Instagram account, you can take photos along the way and easily hook them up to playback with your visualisation. Or if you have a GoPro handy, you can um, upload to YouTube and also get that to playback um, synchronised with a simple picture-in-picture control. <laughs> wow, Chris, that's uh, a huge, a huge potential. I can see that, uh, and uh, 
how, how do you make a quid from it? Well, the, um, the idea is that if if the site and particularly the API um, can be widely used, then we'll have a um, volume-based pricing model based off the API usage. So if there's already a service that is, um, you know, has a subscription model, um, then we might um, try and get a little portion of that if we're adding value to their service. Uh, well, Chris Cooper, uh, it's a huge fun, uh, and thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. And there we are. We were out at Nectar Labs recently, and as I say, these uh, labs are pretty cool. They don't get a huge amount of publicity, but uh, we on Fuzzy Logic have done quite a bit with them over the years, turning science in great ideas into usable products. And speaking of usable products, <laughs> uh, we on our Ask Fuzzy column that uh, runs in Fairfax, it syndicates across Fairfax and comes out on the printed version of the Canberra Times each Sunday. Last week we ran one on defibrillators. Now, have you ever seen a person have a heart attack? Or have you seen one maybe on the television have a heart attack? Can you imagine what it would be like to be there and this person is looking like they're really struggling? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty scary concept. I myself have been lucky enough, Touchwood, to, to not witness a heart attack, but I can imagine it'd be very scary. And I, I love doing these uh, columns because I get to talk to the researchers, to the technologists themselves, and I learned there's a difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. Really? Yep. Uh, one is got actual heartbeat. One, the heart attack is got to do with the constriction of the blood flow to the heart mm -hmm. and the heart goes into a stress mode and with cardiac arrest it stops <laughs> wow uh, and you kiss your ass goodbye very quickly because you ain't got long and so we've been running a theme in the ask fuzzy columns over the last couple of weeks last week was about defibrillators and today is about pacemakers and so i asked our expert what is the difference between the two because of well, yeah, both send a jolt of electricity into the heart, but it turns out they're quite different things. And I learnt a new word as well. So there's, in fact, there's two words. Uh, tachycardia means tachy as in race, as in fast, as in heart rhythm. And another word, bradycardia, means slow heart rhythm. So a pacemaker collects, corrects both of those problems. It's an implanted device and today we've been talking about technology. So here's a very real example of how a piece of technology keeps a person alive. Mm. It's pretty handy to have your heart beating. Uh, tick, 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 away it goes and if you're in trouble. So the pacemaker uh, will correct either the fast heart rhythm, the tachycardia, or the slow heart rhythm, the bradycardia. And by the way, I, I went to the GP the other day for a checkup, and I've never had a GP say this before, but I said, you could take my blood pressure, you know, while I'm here. And he went, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's, because my, my blood pressure was 108 over 60, which is pretty cool, which is pretty cool. Uh, anyway, so I think on that theme, we might follow up with uh, another one about the heart and because it would keep that theme going for a little bit. And how would you recognize a heart attack if you saw one? Mm. A person clutching their chest and so on. What does a heart attack actually mean? 
Uh, that's fine. But I want to tell you a little anecdote here because I, I, I once went to uh, the GP for a medical check. Uh, <laughs> uh, just a routine one and it turns out I have a heart murmur. Okay. So a heart murmur is a little bit of noise that goes, uh, is generated as the blood pumps through an irregularity in the heart or through the one of the, the arteries, right? And it can mean you have a problem. Houston, we got a problem. You can't just go in 3D. In spite of my earlier claims, you cannot just go in 3D print a heart. Not yet. <laughs> not, not yet, but but there are um, uses on the horizon. In fact, they're talking about medical uses for uh, 3D printing, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I got curious about the heart, and I went and got these books about how the heart works and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I went to the butchers, and I thought, I'm going to have a look and see what a heart looks like, because I read about the left ventricle and the right atrium, or the left the right ventricle and the atrium, and the... Uh, the aorta and the tricuspid valve, that little flap of skin that opens and closes, the heart pumps and all this kind of stuff, right? So here's Rod thinking he's going to do a bit of home science. <laughs> and he gets his slab of meat from the butchers, drops it onto the chopping board and goes, that's just a slab of meat. I've got no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I couldn't make it out. I couldn't find the ventricles, the the chambers. I couldn't find the valves, <laughs> and I learned absolutely nothing. <laughs> and and I don't think we even ate it. Uh, I didn't uh, even put it into it. Didn't a, put it into a pie. No, no, it didn't. Didn't up as a pie, and so uh, that was my little uh, experience. I had this vision, right? of being a surgeon cutting somebody opening sort of prodding this pulsating bit going does anybody know what that bit does <laughs> uh, fortunately i think our surgeons are better trained than that anyway so now uh the other ask fuzzy next week we have one on spider webs Ooh. way cool subject spider webs do you know how many webs, types of silk, there can be in a single spider web? I don't. No clue. Yeah, off, a completely off-the-cuff question there. Seven. One wow, type of web. Really? Yeah. Think of the engineering problem from the point of view of the spider, right? So you've got to build this thing. It's got to be sticky. Uh, and you've got this thing the size of a Volkswagen flying into it. <laughs> and if it's too stretchy... It'll just be like a trampoline, and bing, and out it'll go out the other side. It'll just bounce straight off. If you make it not stretchy enough, the thing is too taut, then it'll just go straight through and out the other side, and no dinner tonight. So it's actually a really fantastically subtle and just amazingly clever thing, right? So the question I sent to my friend who's the naturalist at the Australia Museum, why don't spiders stick to their own web? And I learned some really cool stuff. And one thing he told me, uh, I already knew about the seven types of web, but look at the spider web next time you see one, right? They're almost always vertical. And the spider hangs on the underside of the web, right? Not on the top side, on the underside. And bum up, head down. So if they've got to make a quick uh, escape because a predator's coming in, they... they they attach a bit of silk to their bum and they launch themselves into space and away they go and it's like well our astronauts uh escape <laughs> escape pod right i'm out of here you birds sod off no dinner tonight right that is way cool uh, 
Uh, that's our thought. That's our closing thought for today here on Fuzzy Logic. And a big thank you to our two guests this morning, Sian. Good on you. Thanks very much for having me. And go and 3D print your lunch because it'll be really cool. <laughs> and Hannah, pre- you said you're going to pre- 3D print a new phone. So you better get on with that. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. Uh, good, good to have your company. Uh, plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Lots of exciting stuff. Catch you later.